Welcome to the C3 Calgary podcast. We're so grateful that you're a part of our family and we'd love to invite you to one of our services. To find locations, times, and more information about our church, visit our website at myc3church.ca or find us on Instagram. Enjoy the message. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to those who are joining us on the online as well. We're excited for you to be with us. How good was that worship this morning? So good. I know for me something excellent as we can breathe freely as we're worshiping as well. Now, we are in a series called Hot Topics. I think the theme of that will come up on the screen there behind me. And I have the privilege to jump into the creation story, hot off the press, a new creation theory. No, I'm just kidding. But I do think it's a hot topic. It's a challenging topic with diverse opinions around it. Um, I believe that oftentimes it just in this argument around do we believe in religion or do we believe in science? But it's much more complicated than that. There's actually more nuances to the conversation around it as we jump into the creation story. It's something that's a topic that I think Christians and non-Christians should be familiar with, even if it is in a very simplistic manner of how they understand it, that it's something that people are are familiar with this story. And so we're going to jump right into Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read the entire Genesis story. Our question for today in this hop topic is, can I really believe the creation story? the story that's found in the Bible. So we're going to jump into it. We're going to remind ourselves of what this story actually says, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. So right from Genesis 1 verse 1, possibly the most famous verse in the Bible, it says, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. While a wind from God swept over the face of the waters, then God said, Let there be light. And there was light, And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth 
to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind, with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of, every, of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has bre- the breath of life, I, give, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. All right, so that's a little bit of text to jump into, but I think it's a good starting point for us to remind ourselves, what is the creation story actually saying? What was God speaking out to us uh, in the Genesis account? Now, I think there's some things that we can find within the structure of the book. Um, We see that actually there was not nothing from the beginning. We actually see in Genesis 1 verse 2, there's some sort of watery chaos. And the Spirit of God or a wind blows over that, that God is interacting with something that's there. We see a story here of chaos shifting to order as God creates a habitation where life and its inhabitants can dwell. There's a very intentional picture here that we can see from the creation story. We also see that the primary mode of creation is divine speech. It's God who creates, God who names, God who orders in this process. We also see some repeated words. We see each verse is starting with God said, this divine inspiration that's being spoken from God in the creation story. We also see the phrasing, and there is evening and there is morning. It creates a differentiation between the days that are being here. We see a repeated phrase that God said it was good. Intentionality behind his creation. Recognizing the goodness of his creation. So we see in this structure a verse-by-verse pattern that we can follow. We also see a day-by-day pattern. There's chronological days that are outlined for us. So those of us who like to see things in a linear pattern chronologically, we probably really like this account of Genesis because it flows nicely for us. 
This morning, my hope is to remind us of the validity of the creation story, to present some different perspectives on how we can view creationism, but also to provide you with some practical application steps of what you can pull out of the creation story and live it out through your life. As I was preparing for this, I came across a story, and this story is about a young girl who went to her mother and said, Mommy, can you tell me where people came from? And her mom said, yes, sure. And so she, she started to explain the biblical creation story, and she said, God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the garden, and there he loved them and cared for them and protected them, and then God blessed them with many children, and their children had children, and so on and so on. And this is where people have come from, the people that we have today. And this little girl then went to her daddy and said the same question, said, Daddy, where do people come from? And her dad said, well, once upon a time, there was monkeys. And over time, these monkeys began to view, be seen a little bit more like humans. And over time, they became humans. And they're now the humans we see today. Those are the people that we see today. And so this confused the little girl, and the, the girl went back to her mother and said, Mommy, I'm confused. You told me that God created people, but Daddy said that we came from monkeys. And the mother replied, well, honey, that's easy. I explained to you where my family came from, and well, Dad explained to you where his family came from. Now, thank you for your laughs. It is a humorous story, but I think it sets up the picture for us that even within some homes, there's the vision on how do we interpret the creation story? Where does science fit within it? Where does our faith fit within it? The reality is science or religion, faith is needed in both versions of however we view it. Even within science, the scientific method itself requires observation and testing of something, but because no one was in that time period when it was being created, the very aspect of science cannot be used to prove the theory. But this doesn't leave us with a simple answer of how do we approach the creation story. In fact, the Barna Group did a study looking at why people were leaving the church. Their study was primarily focused towards young adults in the age range of 18 to 29. And in this, one of the reasons that they said people were leaving the church was because the church had taken an antagonistic approach to science. 25% of people within this study said that they actually believed that the church was anti-science entirely. And that 23% actually saw this um, aspect of a creation versus evolution debate as something that had turned them off to church. In my own teaching experience, um, being in the junior high, I heard many stories of people that would graduate and go off to university and come back questioning their faith. They had gone to university, they had heard a professor talk about science and that science proved that evolution was right and the creation story was wrong, and they came back questioning, can I believe the Bible? Can I believe what I learned in church? My own experience in school actually um, was a similar experience. I had a professor who was explaining that uh, evolution is backed by science. The creation story has a whole bunch of holes in it. But they went beyond this and they actually said that because we can't prove the creation story, there's many stories in the Bible that can't be proven. The full validity of the Bible should be thrown out. And this was something that didn't sit right with me. And as I went back into the school systems, I had an opportunity for a couple of years teaching 
about creationism in schools and actually preparing kids for this conversation as they went into universities. And I believe it's an important conversation that we even as adults have to think about what does God say about creation? Where does science fit within it? What are some Christian perspectives that we can look at as well? And so I'm just going to get an image up on the board here or on the screen. We're not going to talk about evolution versus creation this morning. We're actually going to look at, you'll see there's three Christian views. So the the two outermost views are uh, views from the scientific community that completely eliminate God from the equation, that just see it as random chance of what's happened. But we're going to look at the three Christian views in the middle. The one that you're probably most familiar with if you've grown up in the church Uh, or you've heard it taught in the church, is called Young Earth Creationism. This is the viewpoint that God created in six 24-hour days. It's a quite literal reading of what we just read in the Genesis story. They use genealogies within the Bible to help date um, how far back the Bible would go. And there's uh, an interpretation that the earth is thousands of years old by taking a literal six-day account and then being able to see the generations that have come before. We have a thousands of years old um, model. Now, this is not the only theory of Christians. Also, we have uh, kind of a larger umbrella theory of old earth creationism. There's some theories that come under this. The biggest difference I would say is you'll see in these three theories, they all see God as the initiator of creation. They all see humanity as the pinnacle of God's creation, that there is intentionality in that part of creation. Where it changes is aspects of the dating of the earth. So under old earth creationism, there is a viewpoint that the earth was created over billions of years. Now within this, some may have heard of the gap theory. The gap theory is referring to actually two forms of creation, that the first couple verses in Genesis, where it talks about God initiating and creating, is that first creation process. And then there's a gap. This gap helps to explain the scientific uh, understanding of the the fossil record and uh, the geological record that we understand within science. And then there's a second literal six-day, 24-hour creation that takes place as how we see it. There's also the day-age theory, which uh, speaks to each day that's referenced in the Bible, not speaking of a literal day, but actually speaking about an epoch or an age of time. So actually within each one of these days, there's a representation of millions of years taking place as God is creating. I've also heard theories around that maybe it was a literal day, but it was a miraculous creation by God. And what I mean by that is what naturally would have taken a process of millions of years to take place, God miraculously did within one day. I often link this to healings when we, when we think about just physical healings of the body. A doctor may say, naturally, it will take you this long to recover from this injury. But when someone's prayed for and healed, when a miracle takes place, it's instant healing that takes place in that. So the natural process didn't take place. What I'm here to say today, though, is, oh, and the last one, Uh, theistic evolution. This is the one that's probably the most different. It still sees God as the initiator. It still sees humanity as the pinnacle of creation, but it actually is also known as God-guided evolution. It actually sees God as the initiator or the spark of creation, but then was hands-off allowing an evolutionary process to take place. What I want to leave us with is there is different, different opinions that you can take on this. The real question that I have for us this morning is that does your interpretation of how old the earth is fundamentally change Christianity? 
or the foundations of Christianity. Now we look at things like concepts that are the resurrection, the virgin birth, Jesus as the son of God. Now if those stories are changed or you interpret them however you, you want them to be, we actually change the foundation of Christianity. We actually change what we believe and what it means uh, to have salvation. But in, in all the research I've done, I've found no one in whatever theory that they have that actually states that if you have a difference of opinion on creation, that it's a salvation issue. So my point today is whatever stance you take, whatever of those theories that I had talked about you feel you more fall into, that it's not a salvation issue. The question that often comes up that's pushed, I think, why there's controversy still behind this conversation is if my version of the creation story is different, does that change the validity or the authority of the Bible? And that's something that we're going to answer in a little bit. Before we jump into that, the second issue that I want to bring up is actually looking at Genesis 1 and 2 and seeing how there's different aspects of these two creation stories. So we're going to jump right into Genesis chapter 2. And it says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, so now we see it's specifically referring to a day, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to jump down to verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it, of it you shall die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man... It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. And this is where one of the more uh, controversial verses could come in. Verse 19 starts with the word so. So it's connecting to the previous verse of the man needing a partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept. When he took out, then he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. So as we look at this, what can we take out of these accounts? I do think we see a different picture. In the Genesis 1 account, we see this cosmic picture of a creator um, creating by words. In um, the Genesis 2 account, we see what seems like more of a local context um, formed around the garden. We actually see a different intentionality around, is it just trying to explain the cosmos or a bigger picture of creation? Or is it actually trying to introduce us to some of the characters that are going to be key players in the biblical narrative of the book of Genesis, that being Adam and Eve, and the role that they will play in what's about to unfold within this book? Now, the accounts are not exact. 
when you put the two beside each other, and if you're someone who wants them just to all line up in the same order, it might leave you frustrated. In fact, the order of events seems to change, not only in the verses, but it seems to say that man was created, and then God created plants, and then God created animals, which would be a reverse of what we had just read in Genesis 1. So people can bring up that there's some discrepancies here that cause confusion, and then thus want to throw out uh, the validity of the creation story. Now, there's a lot of things of where we could go with this for the sake of time. I'm going to really shorten it. Within Hebrew writing itself, we may be someone who thinks linearly, who is, likes chronology of how things go from A, B, C, D, that Greek thinking, but Hebrew thinking was not that way. When we actually study Hebrew thinking, the way that they get to their main idea is much different. And I'm not going to go too much into that, but even the language that they use can cause some issues with, with translation for us. So when we're talking about using a verb in the past tense, they don't have a difference of a past tense or a past perfect tense. Now, I do teach English, so maybe this is just confusing to you and doesn't matter to you, but it does have significance to me, and let me just show you an example of why. So in verse 9, we see that it says, out of the ground the Lord made. If it's the past perfect tense, we could look at it says, out of the, the ground the Lord had made. Just by changing that, because there's not a way in the Hebrew language to change that, it can totally change the meaning of like, if he's already made it, he's just saying that man now cultivated the plants that the God, God had already made, and now he's put, placing the man in the garden to cultivate those plants. Similarly, in verse 19, that follow-up so out of the ground in relation to trying to find a partner uh, for Adam, we can see that it might not be so out of the ground the Lord God formed, but out of the, Lord, out of the ground the Lord God had formed. And it was showing that there was an intentionality that, that God knew that there was animals that would not satisfy being that partner, that equal co-creator in creation that God created in Eve. And so we could be wrong. Maybe the translation is right. Maybe it's not. But what I'm trying to show you is if we don't actually take a look at how the Hebrew language is compiled, the understanding of how their writing is, we can quite easily just look at these two, discard it, and not actually do justice to the message of what is trying to be delivered by the author of this book. In the larger context, we need to remember that creation is often focused on in the book of Genesis, but it's two chapters of a 50-chapter book. There's a larger message within this chapter that, yes, includes creation, but also includes the fall of man and, call, and shares the story of the heritage of the Israelite people, of the Hebrew people. The stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph actually take up, the first 11 chapters kind of talk about these beginning stages of the world, but the remaining chapter, chapters are the story of God in covenant relationship with these people. And we need to remember that the traditional belief is that Moses wrote this, or at least had wrote the main part of it and later was edited to some degree, but that it was Moses speaking to the Hebrew people coming out of Egypt, who had fled Egypt, who had come out of a polytheistic mindset where there was a God for everything. They worshiped the God who is the sun. They worshiped the God of livestock. And we actually see that Moses is saying, the one true God, the creator of the universe is calling you to be his people. He has chosen you. And this is a message that he's writing this book with them as the intended reader in mind. As we think about this, we can see that there's, there's many topics that are covered in the Genesis story. The story of God and humanity, of sin and grace, of wrath and mercy, covenant and redemption. 
These are themes that will continue throughout the biblical narrative. I believe that those that try to discredit the creation story or the book of Genesis by pointing to alleged discrepancies between religion and science are blind to the spiritual content of this work or to the deeper meaning of what God is sharing through this passage. If someone expects to find in Genesis and in this creation story a perfect scientific account of how the world came into existence with technical answers uh, to primitive life, you're going to leave disappointed because I believe that was never the author's intention. It does create a picture for us of who the creator of the universe is and who this God is that is calling us to be in relationship with us. But it was never intended to specifically answer some of the questions we're trying to place on these passages to discredit them. To me, the incredible thing about scripture, some may have heard the, that the Bible is like an onion. It's got so many layers. There's so many different aspects to it. There's always more learning that you can do about it. I actually think that it's unique in that no generation has been able to completely answer all the questions of the Bible. What this means is that each new generation needs to go through a process of wrestling with the text, of wrestling with the historical context of, of what happened in the ages before, what happened in the, the story of these original readers, and what is the context of our time period? What is the connection I can make to that time, to my time period today? And it actually forces us to mature as Christians, not to just look back and say, oh, the earlier generations had all the answers. I'm just going to take those answers. It actually forces us to dive into the scriptures, to wrestle with the scripture, to come out with more questions oftentimes. And so the third issue I want to talk about today is that if we question the creation story, can we trust biblical authority? I think this is the, the bigger question that is at issue. That if, if you have a difference of opinion on the creation story, does that mean that I can't trust the Bible and other stories that are within it? I hope from what we've seen in the, the true previous issues that I've shared about, that that shouldn't be an issue that's coming up for us. I believe that if we understand the creation story as it was tended, as it was intended and as it was written, that we can see that the scientific record in the way that the skeptics try to portray it is not an issue that should challenge our trust in the biblical authority or the validity of scripture. It is important that we don't lose faith in the authority of the Bible because we have lost sight of the message of the Bible. The whole Bible is about God establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And like it once was in the Garden of Eden, this perfect picture of God in relationship and connection with his creation where that which was created in his image could reflect God back. When we reference the authority of scripture, we're ultimately referencing the authority of God in Jesus, which is mediated through scripture. The authority of scripture, therefore, is something that is dynamic. It's not static. It is the means by which God transforms humans into Jesus' followers and therefore kingdom workers. He includes us in this process of building his kingdom here on earth. As we close today, I want to leave us with some action steps. The first action step is a mindset shift that I believe some of us may need to go on. And that's that we need to recognize that the creation story reveals to us the God of all creation and the king of the universe who desires to be in relationship with his creation. 
In the combination of Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God is both a creator who speaks and a creator who intimately has a hands-on connection with his creation. We saw this in Genesis 2 where we see him get involved in the process with the elements of his creation, with dust and the ground and the rib, where he's hands-on, that he's connected to his creation and what is taking place. In fact, he breathed the breath of life into us to form us in his image. Something that I think is a whole nother message, but an incredible picture of the connection between us and God. He created the Garden of Eden as an intimate dwelling for him and his creation. In some ways, we can call it a temple model. The central message of the gospel and of Jesus himself was that through him and his work and through his death and resurrection, the living God was becoming king on earth and in heaven once again, making that connection. Though he is king of the universe, he is totally accessible to us. He is the king of the light and the king of wisdom. There's this concept of God being the light of the universe that I think is so amazing. When we read Genesis 1-3, it says, let there be light. It is my belief that this light, in fact, in relation to how we read Genesis, that the sun itself is not created until day four, that this light that is being spoken of, that is spoken out by God, is the very presence of God coming out from God. It is then fitting that Jesus will become, in the biblical narrative, the light of the world, and who was also part of this creation narrative in the beginning. We also see a God of wisdom in this creation story. Greater than our wisdom and our, or our understanding could quite likely fathom. The Psalms and the Proverbs pointed to a creator God that created the world by wisdom. And Paul and John pick up this theme in the New Testament when they speak of Jesus himself in the language of wisdom and as the light of the world through whom all things were made. So we're just going to hop over to John chapter 1. I think there's a great picture here of Jesus in connection uh, to creation and to being the light of the world. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the word is referring to Jesus here. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and darkness did not overcome it. We're already seeing connections to the Genesis creation story. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. I'm just going to ask the keys to come back up on stage. In the ancient world, the Genesis 1 and 2 account would have been seen as a story about a God building a temple regardless if it was the Hebrew people or other people, but that a dwelling place was being created where a creator God could dwell with and be worshipped by that which was created. It is a world where God remains God and humans remain creatures, but in which God's sphere, which is heaven, and the human sphere, which is earth, 
interpenetrate and are, by design, mutually permeable. This picture was created in the garden where we see in Genesis 3 that God walks with his creation in the evening breeze. And it's a picture that continues on, which I'll address in a short moment. In Psalm 65, 9, it says, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide people with grain for so you have prepared it. Reminding us of an intentional God wanting to be connected with his creation. As the famous poet Gerard Manley Hopkins once said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. We saw the video of Doug earlier being out in creation, in nature. And I know for me when I get away, I I see the fingerprints of God and the intricacies of just the little things that are so well crafted that in my opinion cannot be random chance but have intentionality behind them. They remind me that I've been created to reflect the image of my creator. In Habakkuk 2.14, it says, But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The idea of the whole earth being filled with the creator's glory also connects with the creation as a temple narrative. We see not only in the Garden of Eden this aspect of God wanting to be in relationship with his creation, but we also see when the tabernacle in Exodus 40 has the glory of the Lord Philip, that God once again dwells with a chosen people, his creation. And later in 1 Kings chapter 8, we see in the first Jerusalem temple, God's glory again fills the temple. He dwells amongst his people. When the Israelites went into exile, the prophets were very clear that God's glory would return. And it surely did return in Jesus, the Messiah. And through God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. I think this picture of the temple or a dwelling place where God wants to be in relationship with his creation is very clear. The choice we have is how do we engage with a creator who desires to be in relationship with us and ask us to reflect the image of God within us back to him and to our world. We must not forget the role we play in this covenant relationship with God and the calling to be a reflection of God to our world. We become sharers in God's kingdom work by loving him with heart, mind, and strength. And the Bible is the primary means the Spirit uses to bring about that heart and life renewal in and through us. The four Gospels completely align with Genesis, the Psalms, Isaiah, and the rest in telling how God became king, how the creator God in and through Jesus launched his new creation project in our world. This is not a message about rescuing people from the world, but of God's creative spirit anointing Jesus, but also breathed out by him through which humans are called to carry forward God's plan of new creation and be those kingdom workers here on earth. Humans are able to once more reflect God into his world and the world back into worship to God. When we ask Jesus into our heart, it says, as Jesus is the representation of that temple, Jesus in us, we now become representations of that temple, of Christ living with us, of God in relationship once again with us. 
My final action step that I want us to think about is to think about a lifestyle change. To recognize that the creation story reveals our ability to reflect God through our life. But what does that mean? We reflect Jesus through our actions and we reflect Jesus through our words. My question to you is what is the model of Jesus people see when they look at our life? What does our prayer life and time in the Bible look like to prepare us for a life of authentically modeling Jesus and the character of God to others? I know for me this is something that's been really challenging me. I love being in the Bible, reading the Bible. I do pray every day, but I feel God's challenging me to a deeper level of being in relationship with him. If I want to authentically reflect who he is in my life to those in the world, those being Christians and non-Christians, of who Christ is and reminding us that we serve the God of the universe, the creator of the universe and the king of his kingdom that he wants us to be a part of. The final thing I want us to leave with is to reflect Jesus through our words, to remind us that words are powerful, that we see the author in Genesis creating, in Genesis 1, creating this picture of a creator who intentionally spoke words to create into existence. And I think too often we take our words for granted, we take our thoughts for granted of the power that they have. Science is showing today that actually the words that you speak have the ability to retrain neural pathways within our brain, to reconnect things that have been disconnected. There's power within our words. The words we speak about ourselves matter. I feel there's some people here today that there's language that you speak about yourself, that you beat yourself up, that you don't feel you're enough. that you feel there's something wrong with how God created you. But I want to remind us that we were each created unique And the, the way that God wanted us to be created. The second thing is that the words we speak about our situation matters. It's been a challenging year <clears throat> for many, but I think there's power in how we talk about the things we're facing, the challenges that many of them we can overcome by ourselves, but when we include God in the process, when we speak language, when we recognize that we're overcomers, that we're resilient people, that with Christ can take on whatever comes our way. We can shift the atmosphere of where we're learning. We can shift the situations that we're needing to deal with. And the final thing is that the words that we speak about others also matters. I know sometimes it's very easy to be judgmental, to point the finger at other people, especially in the age of social media and in this season where disconnection with people in person leads to us only in some ways connecting with people through social media and being offended. But when we are reminded that each human being is created in God's image, I think it shifts our perspective on how we treat other people, of how we speak about other people. 
And if we're truly to represent Jesus as the light of the world through our life, these actions of our life, these words that we speak through our life need to change and need to shift. We're going to close today. I want to still give an opportunity um, to pray for salvations. Uh, if you're online, we do have um, a text in number that there will be a follow-up for you. And if you're, you're here as well. But I just want us to, to bow our heads in this moment. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, if there's been a block or even if you felt there's been a part of you that's journeyed away from Christ because of this struggle that you have of trusting the validity of Scripture, trusting that the Bible is representing Jesus as who he says he is, I want to pray for you this, this morning. So if there's anybody in here who's never asked Jesus into their heart or wants to make a recommitment this morning, I just ask that you, you raise your hand and I want to pray with you this morning. Give us a moment. The second group of people that I want to pray for is people that are looking for breakthrough in their world. People wanting to be intentional about how they reflect God in their world through the actions and words of their life. I'm just going to share an impartation prayer, but if that's you that you're saying something stirred within you this morning, to reflect on the way that you're thinking about who God is as the creator and king of the universe and that relationship that he desires with you and that we can be more intentional with our words about ourselves and about others. If that's you that you feel God saying, I want to take that step to be more intentional about how I'm living out my life, I just ask that you stand in this place this morning. And I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you as the creator of the universe, the king of the universe, are not some distant king that lives separated in isolation away from us, leaving us to our own devices, but that you intentionally interact with your creation and you have from the very beginning. I thank you that these people here today, Lord God, that something has been stirred in their heart to grow deeper in relationship and intimacy with you. I thank you that is your very model from creation in the Garden of Eden that you designed us to be in relationship with you, to be your image bearers and be reflectors of who you are through us and that through that we can give you glory, God. I pray for each one that's standing here today, Lord God, that whatever it is that you've been challenging them in, that you provide a practical application step. If that's spending a little bit more time in prayer, Lord God, I pray that they think about even just spending a minute in the morning each morning starting their day off with prayer. If that's getting into the word, Lord God, I pray that a hunger grows up within them to get into your word, to wrestle with your word, to face some of the tensions and awkwardness that we can find with things we don't understand in scripture. I thank you, Lord God, that as you rise up within us a desire to grow in relationship, you are waiting with open arms to receive us in. And I just bless each person here today, Lord God. 
with a hunger and an intimacy that will grow in this season, that it will not be a season of dryness, but of fruitfulness, that seeds that we're sowing, Lord God, will bear fruit in this next season that are coming up. That as we face challenges in life, that we can be reminded, Lord God, that we are not facing them alone, that you are there with us. I bless everyone that's here this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. I do hope that this morning... We can look beyond the creation narrative of how we date it, but actually look at the creator of the universe who is establishing his kingdom here on earth, who loves his creation so much that he wants to be in an intimate relationship with that creation, and we have a role to play in that. I'm going to invite Serena. Thanks for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. And check out our C3 Calgary live stream on YouTube. If this message resonated with you and you'd like to give to our church, you can do so on our website at myc3church.ca. See you next week.